Well, I invite you to open your uh, Bibles with me to Acts chapter 7 this morning. And we'll be uh, continuing our study in the book of Acts. And uh, specifically, the uh, defense that Stephen will now make before the Jewish Sanhedrin uh, at the temple in Jerusalem. As you're turning to Acts chapter 7, Stephen is on trial. He has been uh, dragged before the Sanhedrin. And he's accused by these Jews of the synagogue of the freedmen who who were a Hellenistic, Greek-speaking synagogue there in the city of Jerusalem. And he was being accused of basically two blasphemies. And you can read them back in chapter 6. If you look at verse 13, it says they put forward false witnesses who said this man incessantly speaks against this holy place, i.e. the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. So there's two basic accusations that they're making against Stephen. One is that he's been blaspheming the temple. And secondly, that he's been blaspheming the law of God and Moses and all that goes with the law. So what we have now in verse 7, chapter 7, excuse me, verse 1, the high priest said, are these things so? And now Stephen will have an opportunity to give a sermon, the longest sermon in the book of Acts, He'll start in verse 2, and it'll go all the way down uh, through verse uh, 53. So it's very long. And, uh, but in this sermon, what Stephen will do is he will defend himself on both of these two accusations that have been leveled against him. That he's blaspheming the temple, and he's blaspheming the law of God. So that's basically what he's going to do. But he takes a very unusual approach uh, in his defense on these two charges. Basically, what Stephen is going to do is he's going to put on his history teacher's hat. And he's going to walk the Sanhedrin through information that certainly they knew and understood. But But in doing so, he's going to emphasize certain points very subtly to get across the fact that he's not the one who's misunderstanding or blaspheming the temple. Actually, they are. That he's not the one that's blaspheming the law of God. Actually, they are. And so, but he does it in a very soft-spoken, if you will, very subtle way. So because of the length of this sermon, uh, all we're going to deal with this morning is looking at how he... Uh, presents the notion of the temple of God. That he's not blaspheming the temple as they have accused him to be doing. And in fact, what we're going to see as we work through the sermon, that he's going to uh, basically try to correct their misunderstanding of the significance and importance of the temple, that basically they have turned it into an idol. And so he's going to confront them on that. Uh, as we begin, I want to start off by just kind of uh, reviewing what I think was Stephen's understanding of the temple, just in light of the teachings of Christ. And this will kind of lay a, 
a foundation for kind of reading between the lines as we work through his sermon. Uh, If you remember, the Lord Jesus in the Olivet Discourse made this uh, very startling statement to his disciples, which obviously Stephen knew about at this point in time. But in Matthew 24, verse 1 and 2, it says, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So Jesus prophesies that someday in the future, within the length of one generation, which is normally about 40 years, the temple would be destroyed so that there would not be one stone left upon another. And of course, that was literally fulfilled in 70 A.D. when the Romans came down and destroyed the temple. Jesus is not saying he's destroying it but the Romans will be the one to destroy the temple. So obviously Stephen knew this teaching from Jesus. He knew that the temple had a short-term lifespan from his point in time uh, that it would eventually be destroyed. And then you can also remember what Jesus taught early in his public ministry all the way back in John chapter 2 when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then, thinking of the physical temple there in Jerusalem, said it took 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So that when Christ came, the new temple, the new covenant temple, was actually his physical body. And it's part of the incredible incarnation that we'll talk about a little bit later on. But by God's design, there is going to be a change from the concept of the temple from a building to a body. And this is something that I think Stephen understood. I think by this time with the Holy Spirit teaching and unfolding these truths and bringing to remembrance all the things that Jesus had taught, I think he understood this. That would be my guess, that he, he had a firm understanding that the, the, the physical temple building in Jerusalem was going to be replaced by the new covenant temple, which is the very body of Jesus Christ. So we can see that at least uh, I think Stephen had these things in the back of his mind. Now, as we go through his sermon, some have criticized Stephen that there's not a lot of Christ in there. He's there, but he's kind of in the shadows. It's almost like he's a Christ is the watermark on the stationary page. It's there. It's subtle. It's faint. It's in the background, but it's clearly visible, clearly there. So even though he... uh, And by the way, I think he would have said more about Christ, but his sermon was ended early by his martyrdom when they took him out of Jerusalem and stoned him to death. But Christ is definitely here, but he's in the background. He's like that watermark on the letterhead. But what we're going to see is I think Stephen does have a biblical Christ-centered understanding of the temple. And again, we'll look at that more a little bit later on. But next, I want you to consider the Jewish understanding of the temple, because this is where the problem arose. In the first century, the the Jewish hierarchy and the Jewish people in general, they gloried in the temple, that building there on Temple Mount in, in Jerusalem. 
The Sanhedrin would have looked upon the temple of this is, this is where God dwells on planet earth. He's right here in this building. They had God right there with them in their mindset, which meant that in their minds that they must have God's approval because they have God's temple and that's where God lives. He's right here. It must have reinforced to them that we are God's special, holy, elect nation. And we are God's people. We're going to heaven because we have the temple right here. And that's where God lives. It was a proof of their good standing with God that they still had the temple there. And they began to, to look at the as a temple building in and of itself as a sign of God's acceptance and God's approval and God's presence and God's blessing upon them as a nation. But you see, the problem with that is that they, they began to think in terms of confining and localizing the very presence of God in that building, in that temple. In other words, for, for them, the only place that God could be found on the earth was in the temple. It was in that building. So that they viewed that as the very center of the world. Even some of the rabbinic writings understood the temple was the center of the very cosmos. And I won't go into all of that, but they had an incredibly elevated view of this physical building made of stone. It was where God put His name. It was their most holy place in all of Judaism. It was the very center of their life. And for them, the Jews, and particularly the Sanhedrin, the council before whom Stephen is speaking, had made the temple a false hope of God's favor. You know, like in our currency, what do we have written on our currency? In God we trust. Which we don't do that very much in America anymore. But in the Jewish mind, their motto was, in the temple we trust. And because they put all of their focus on the outward structure of the temple, not their relationship with God, understand, is because they had the building, because they had the structure, because as a physical edifice that God was pleased with them, that they were acceptable to God because they had God's house in their midst, God's presence with them. And they began to use this as a, as a false hope that God's favor was, was, was on them. Almost similar to the prophet Samuel days and Eli. When Israel was defeated in the battle by the Philistines, you remember that? And so they come back to Eli and they say, the reason why we got defeated is because God wasn't with us. So let's go get the Ark of the Covenant and we'll take it out into the battle with us and God will be with us and we'll win the battle. So they took the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the Philistines and were decimated again, defeated again by the Philistines because they had put a false hope that God was in the box, that God is in the building. So surely we are in good standing with God. And yet their hearts were far away from the Lord in rebellion against God. Even though they had the temple, Christ had to rebuke the Pharisees and the scribes Eight times in Matthew chapter 23. And this is what he said to them. You are blind guides of the blind. You are nitpicking legalists and tithing mint, dill, and cumin. But you neglect the weightier provisions of the law. Like justice and mercy and faithfulness. 
You clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is full of robbery and self-indulgence. You whitewash your tombs and you make them look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. In other words, their religion had gone astray. Their religion was all skin and no heart. So they put their trust, their confidence, their hope because they had the temple. And even Jeremiah in an earlier uh, time had to actually rebuke the Israelites for the very same sin. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4, he said, Do not trust in deceptive words saying, This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. In other words, God won't judge us for our sin because we have the temple of the Lord. We have His presence with us. All is well. And yet Jeremiah went on to say, God will destroy you and He will destroy the temple because of your sin. Don't make that building some kind of false hope of God's favor because you're rebelling against Me. I think what we see in this is that Judaism in the first century, which is going... Part of the background of Stephen's sermon is that they have turned their worship of God kind of in the same way people do today. That it's not so much a relationship with God that's front and center in their heart's desire, but it becomes the importance is placed on, on where you worship and, and the building that you go to and the beauty of the architecture and the sights and sounds of worship though their hearts are far from God. Their worship, even today, for many people, is rooted more in traditions rather than a a living relationship with God. They do not know God, but they think they're safe with God because they go to church or because they go to some envisioned holy place. And so God is acceptable to them and they're acceptable to God. Because they've, they've developed this false hope, this false sense of security based on having the physical temple in their, in their presence. They can recite the creeds. They can sing the hymns. But it's all formality. It's all ritual. It's all ceremony. It's all institutionalized religion. There's not much spiritual life in it at all. And so again, this was a problem that Israel has struggled with for many centuries. And Isaiah had to rebuke them on this count when he said in Isaiah 29, 13, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. And as Jeremiah, who witnessed the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. said, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And that's really what religion is all about, sadly. It's all about making us feel good about ourselves because we're involved in all these outward exercises, outward activities. And everything outward looks good in our life, but they don't know God. They don't know God at all. And this was a problem with Judaism in the first century. This was a problem of the Sanhedrin before whom Stephen is preaching. 
that they saw the temple, the physical building, as a proof of God's favor, as a proof of God's presence, that God delighted in them, that, he was, that they were the apple of His eye, that they were the crown of His glory, as it were, so that the temple was heaven on earth. And in effect, what they were doing was imprisoning God in the temple, putting God in a box, if you will, and so that any suggestions of Christ that Stephen was preaching to the people, that that temple would be destroyed in the future. And granted, they misunderstand Jesus' word in John 2 when he said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. He's not talking about that physical temple, though that's the way they interpreted it. Same charge brought up against Christ at his, his own trial. But any suggestion that anybody was going to damage or destroy the temple was the height of blasphemy in their minds. It was like a, 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 the threat of a nuclear bomb falling on them. It was blasphemy and their religion, again, was all stone and mortar. Nothing of the Spirit, nothing of the truth. So now we come to Stephen's sermon with that in the background. And the key point I want to emphasize this morning is his defense of the first accusation raised against him that uh, Christ said that he was going to destroy the temple and that you're, you're promoting this destruction of the temple uh, was, was totally a misunderstanding not only of the character of God, but of God's purpose in the new covenant. The main point that Stephen's going to make is that God's presence is found worldwide that the temple was always meant to be but a temporary dwelling place of God among His people. That you cannot confine God's presence to a building. And Derek Thomas, in his commentary, puts it this way, that God's presence has never been confined to a geographical zip code, not even on Mount Zion where the temple was built. Because God has appeared in His glory in many places on the earth. And to somehow fixate that God is, is in this place and only in this place is to misunderstand the very nature of God's character and the nature of God's new covenant plan. So God has never confined Himself to one sacred spot. So they have made an idol of the temple and that is absolutely a true blasphemy against God. So what we want to do is I want to quickly kind of read through this sermon with this in mind, that God's presence is, is in many, many places. And this, this idolatrous understanding that God's presence is only here in the temple, in the box, if you will, is, is idolatry. And it's totally inaccurate. It's a distortion of God's omnipresence, His great attribute. So we're going to begin by walking through this. And the map that I have, you'll notice that through this sermon, Stephen is going to basically give a historical overview of the Old Testament. He's going to talk about Abraham in the first eight verses. Then he's going to talk about Joseph in verses 9 through 16, Moses in verses 17 through 45. And then from there, he's going to talk about David and the actual building of the temple. And that's where he kind of crescendos. So let's begin by starting in verse 2 and just see how Stephen develops this understanding of God's glory being manifested in a variety of places. Notice in verse 2, 
And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So already at the outset, you Jews, you want to confine God in a box? You want to put him in the temple? Says he's only there? That he's assigned. God was in Mesopotamia. He appeared as the God of glory in a pagan Gentile land. It was in the area of the Ur of the Chaldees that, that he was uh, manifesting his glory uh, to Abraham. And this again was not in Jerusalem. It was not in a temple building, but God revealed himself to Abraham. Go on, verse 3, and he said, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. And then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. Haran is up here at the very top of the, uh, of the little red tracking line. That's where Haran is. So he first appeared to Abraham down here in the Ur of the Chaldees, and then he appeared again up there in Haran. He says, uh, verse 4, Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. For there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. He gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. So already the Abrahamic covenant, which was celebrated by Israel, where was that made at? Where did God make that revelation at? Where did God make those promises to Abraham at? Not even in the land of Canaan. It was in the Gentile land of the Ur of the Chaldees and also back up in Haran where he, where he repeats that covenant blessing. So again, you, you, he's already laying a foundation that you cannot confine God's presence to a building in Jerusalem. That's not the way God works. God's omnipresent. He's, he's manifests His presence all over the place. And then in verse... Uh, Six, but God spoke to this effect that the descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation of which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So the covenant of circumcision and, and the idea that they would be sent to Egypt for 400 years was revealed down in Canaan after Abraham finally moved down in there. And it actually occurred in the area of Hebron, which is south of Jerusalem. Again, no temple, no Jerusalem yet, and yet God was already continually revealing His plan, giving Abraham the covenant of circumcision in Haran. I'm sorry, in Hebron. And then in verses 9 through 16, Stephen now turns his attention on Joseph. In verse 9, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him. You see the subtle point that he's making. God is everywhere. God is now going to be with Joseph way down here in the land of Egypt. So God's presence was there. God was with him. God spoke to him. God gave him dreams there. 
So you can't confine him here in Jerusalem. You can't confine him to a temple and make an, an idol of that building like they had been doing. Because God's presence can be anywhere. So we go on and read in verse, uh, verse 10 that God was with him and rescued him from all of his afflictions. So God was very active there in Egypt and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all of his household. Now a famine came all over Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction was with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all of his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. He's just kind of rounding up the number. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. And from there they were moved to, removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb, which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. So again, what's the point? He's just quickly hitting the high points of Jewish history pointing out that, look, God's presence is everywhere. Don't make an idol of the temple. Don't make an idol of this one place in the first century where where you think is God's presence. He can be anywhere. And he emphasized it with Abraham and again with Joseph. And then we pick it up with Moses. This is the longest section, starting in verse 17. Notice, but at the time of the promise, as the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. So now we finish out the book of Genesis. He's starting into the book of Exodus. But notice what happened. By saying that in verse 17 that the nation increased and multiplied in Egypt, why did that happen? Because God was fulfilling His promise to Abraham that He would make of him a great nation. Again, what's the emphasis? God was there in Egypt. God was there for 400 years multiplying the nation. God's presence, God's blessing was there with them in in Egypt. This pagan land again. So again, all of this is to try to undermine their idolatry of the temple. Let's pick it up in verse uh, 19. And it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at that time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. So God's eye was on Moses. Moses was lovely in the sight of God. God's eye was on Moses while he was born in Egypt. So again, God is still working in Egypt, not Canaan, not the Holy Land, in Egypt, a pagan nation. But God was there in a mighty, powerful way. Verse 21, And after he had been Set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand it. 
So apparently God had revealed to Moses and led Moses into thinking that he was going to be the deliverer. He didn't understand God's timing, but God was at work molding Moses, giving him this incredible education, giving him this notion that God was going to use him in a mighty way to deliver his people from their bondage in Egypt. Verse 26, on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? And you do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And at this remark, Moses fled, became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of the burning thorn bush. So again, God now is manifesting Himself, this time in a very amazing theophany of God's glory lighting up that thorn bush. And where is this taking place at? Now it's in the Sinai Peninsula. That's where I think Mount Sinai is. So now He's out of Egypt, but He's in the wilderness. And God's presence is there with Moses in a very powerful way through this, this great light, this burning fire, yet the bush was not consumed a very spectacular manifestation of God's presence and glory, not in Jerusalem, not in a temple building, but way out in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. So let's pick it up from there. Verse 31, When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, and by the way, at this point, when God reveals himself to Moses, this is when God first reveals his sacred covenant name to his people, Yahweh. It's at the burning bush. This incredible revelation of God's name and God's nature didn't occur in Jerusalem, didn't occur in a temple. It occurred on a mountainside in a wilderness. So again, again, Stephen is is very subtly trying to indicate that you have idolized the temple. Don't do that. And then he picks it up again uh, in verse 33. The Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Again, there is holy ground apart from the holy nation. There is holy ground apart from the holy temple. So Stephen again is just reiterating this truth that they had missed, that they had ignored. They were trying to put God in a box and confine God to that, that, that building. And you can't do that because of the glory of His nature. Verse 34, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans and I have come down to rescue them. Come now and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they disowned, there's a lot of parallels between Moses and Christ as they disowned Moses, so they will disown Christ. And they have already disowned Christ, the Sanhedrin. This Moses whom they disowned saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out 
performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Again, notice God was with Moses. He did signs. He did miracles. He didn't do it. God did it through him because God was with him at the Red Sea. God was with him in the wilderness for 40 years. Again, God's presence cannot be confined to a building in the city of Jerusalem. And he's just subtly drilling and hammering that that point over and over and over again. Verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Here he's reiterating one of the great Old Testament prophecies of the coming of Jesus Christ, who was that prophet. Stephen slips that in. If Stephen just outright preached Christ, he would have gone for maybe one or two verses and they probably probably would have attacked him on the spot. But he's using a very spirit-led, godly, subtle means of communicating their idolatry of the temple by what he's saying here. Verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who is with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. So at Mount Sinai, not only did God's glory appear on the mountain, but God revealed the very law of the covenant. Not in Jerusalem. Not from a temple. But from a mountain. That was his pulpit. In giving the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law to God's people. Not in the Holy Land. Not in Jerusalem, not in the temple. It's on a mountain in the wilderness. That's where God was. Don't think you can confine his presence into one localized area like they were doing. Where am I? Verse 39. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt. This is another one of the themes that we'll see next week throughout this is just their consistent, ongoing rebellion against God. Verse 40, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And at that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and rejoicing in the works of their hands. Notice that. That's always a key for idolatry it's the work of their hands okay we'll pick it up there verse 42 but god turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness was it O house of israel you also took along the tabernacle of Moses. Moloch was one of the old Moabite gods and idols. That's who they worshipped in the wilderness, not the true God. The tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rampha, another pagan god that they worshipped in those 40 years. Their heart was far from God. What you have made to worship, I also will remove you beyond Babylon. In other words, and this is a reference to God uprooting Israel out of the land because of their idolatry and their sin, destroying the temple under Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and taking them out of the land into Babylon as captives. Then verse 44, Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the, in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according 
to the pattern which he had seen. And now we have the tabernacle coming in, but the tabernacle was not localized in one place. The tabernacle moved with the people. The tabernacle was a tent. They would collapse it and put it up and they would carry it all over the place, all over the wilderness. But that was the first type of a, of a place where God was, was dwelling with, with Israel. Verse 45, And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it uh, in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. And David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for God of Jacob, for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, and then this is critical. This is kind of winding up. This is, this is kind of the crescendo of what he's emphasizing. Verse 48. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is a footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? In other words, God's glory is in heaven. That's his throne. That's his dwelling place. The earth is a footstool for his feet. Why do you idolize a temple thinking this is where God dwells and only where God dwells? And because you think you still have the temple standing, that God is there and he's, he, you're in his favor. And Stephen is implying how wrong that is. They have misunderstood the very character of God. They literally are putting God in a box. But you can't put God in a box. God doesn't just give Himself one earthly place for His glory to be manifest. Manifest all over the place, all over the, 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 the known world at that time. Now even, even uh, Solomon when he built the, the temple, understood that this house was not in any way to be considered God's true dwelling place. Even Solomon said as he dedicated the temple, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. So it was only a... a uh, a symbol of God's presence. And yet the Jews had taken it in such a literal way that they had totally began to confine and distort the very character of God that this is where God lives. Just like the gods of the Olympiad. You know, they dwell in certain places and that's how they, they were kind of viewing God in that similar kind of a distorted way. And notice if you look very carefully at verse 50, was it not my hand which made all these things? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, back up to verse 48. The Most High God does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Now notice again, back up in verse 41, making something with a human hand was an idol in verse 41. And I think Stephen is emphasizing that the temple was made by human hands because in effect, that really kind of expresses reality of, of how they had begun to look at the temple. It was made by human hands. They had turned it basically into an idol, a place where God was, where they could confine God in their own particular way. And I think that language in verse 48 that 
The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands because in effect, as they made the, the temple with human hands, sadly, they had actually made it like other idols. They had turned it into an idol and had distorted the very character of God. In verse 49 and 50, Stephen quotes this great passage from Isaiah chapter 66, which says, basically, heaven is God's throne. The earth is a footstool of His feet. No man-made house can contain Him. The entire earth is merely the place where He puts His feet. How can you, how can you have this idolatrous view of the temple? And I can imagine at this point in time that the council is just beginning to boil up on the inside. And then comes the preaching in verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and always resisting the Holy Spirit, you're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who previously announced the coming of the righteous one. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus Christ, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And you have received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And at this point, it's all over for the preaching. Now it's time for the killing. And they begin to gnash their teeth. And the rest of the chapter begins to unfold the, the last few moments of Stephen's life where eventually he will be dragged out of the city of Jerusalem and stoned. Why was the temple needing to be destroyed as Christ had prophesied? Well, because it had become defiled. It had become corrupt. It had become an idol to Israel. Uh, and that's why you remember Christ uh, twice in his earthly ministry had to go cleanse the temple because of just all of the they, they had turned it into a robber's den. They had turned it into a place of merchandise. It wasn't a house of prayer for them in a real spiritual sense It was a place to make money it was a place for them to make a deal. It was a place of this outward facade of religion. But it had been totally corrupted. And yet the Jews just thought that, you know, because the temple was there, they in good standing with God. And then again, to show that God was done with the temple. When Christ died on the cross, what happened inside the Holy of Holies? The veil was torn from top to bottom. And that thing was way up in the air. And it's clearly an act of God in tearing the veil in two. What was God signifying? Don't need this anymore. It's fulfilled its purpose. It's time for it to be replaced by my perfect temple, which is my son, the Lord Jesus, who I've sent down to you, but you have rejected him. He's the temple. He's the true temple, the dwelling place of God. And then, of course, in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed it. So what we see in conclusion, as I try to emphasize a couple of major points here, is that Stephen's sermon is exposing the idolatry of their own corrupt religion. The Jews at that time were all into the outward externals of religion. And there's always a danger when any individual or any church begins to think that their relationship of God is based upon their outward actions. 
or what they do or where they go or where they don't go. And that kind of externalism is death to true religion. Because the only way that you can know God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. The externals, are that's all they are. They are externals. But they don't make you acceptable to God. We are acceptable only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And sadly, the Jews of the first century that Stephen is preaching to were guilty of what Paul accused and said that the end time spirit would be in 2 Timothy 3.5, that there are those who hold to a form of godliness, but they have denied its power. And that was certainly true of the Sanhedrin. It was not a relationship with God that they had. It was a religion. And we must always understand that we need to seek after a personal relationship with God. You will never be forgiven of your sins unless you personally understand that you're a sinner deserving the eternal judgment of God. And you turn from your sin and embrace by faith Christ alone to save you. And that's how you establish a personal relationship with God. Just being involved in outward activities, that's not going to give you a good standing with the Lord. But Stephen's sermon, I think, was cut short because of the rebellion and the ultimate stoning that he received from their hands. But I think if Stephen had carried this on and developed it more, I think he would have emphasized two things, at least one of two things. One is that Christ is now the new covenant temple. And that as a corollary of that, we are also now the spiritual new covenant temple in Christ. So what I want to do in the last couple of minutes that I have is to do what Paul Harvey would always do on his radio program. And that is to, to tell you the, the rest of the story. And this is what we don't see in the sermon. But again, I think it's what Stephen understood. And I think it's important for us to understand this as we see the effect of his sermon. But first off, Christ is the new covenant temple. Again, John 2, destroy this temple in three days and I will rebuild it. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And what's so important to understand about this is that you no longer need a physical temple once Jesus Christ has come on the scene. Because all that the temple in the Old Testament represented all that it pointed forward to is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament temple had a high priest. Christ is now our high priest. The Old Testament temple had animal sacrifices. It had the Passover lamb. But Christ fulfills all that. It brought in blood to the mercy seat for an atonement. The blood of Christ on the cross now is poured out on the mercy seat of God by which we have salvation. Because the blood of animals could never take away sin. Christ is now the light. They would always light the lampstand inside the temple. Christ is now the light of the world. He's the bread that came down from heaven on the showbread. He's the one in the altar of incense offering up his prayers. He's, he's, our, he's our great divine eternal intercessor who's always praying for all that the temple was. All that it pointed forward to is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And once Christ has come, you no longer need that. It's obsolete. It will be destroyed. Because it no longer fits into the new covenant temple of the living God. This is even understood by John. Earlier in John chapter 1 verse 14. He said the word, that's Jesus Christ, 
became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word in Greek is the word for tabernacle. It's like the Old Testament tent that tabernacled with Israel and was always with them. Well, now he's here in person. He's here in flesh and blood. The temple of God. God dwelling in a human nature. That human nature is now the new covenant temple. It's where God dwells. Not in a building, but in a body that has been joined to the divine nature of the Son of God. That is now the new covenant temple of the living God. And John understood that. So that throughout the Lord's earthly ministry, it was a walking, talking, breathing temple of the living God. Because what is a temple anyway? Temples where God dwells. And God the Son was now dwelling in that human nature. So that makes that body a temple. And not only is it the temple, but it's the temple that you'll never need to go back to the Old Testament temple because Christ in coming down is now the true temple. He is the new meeting place. So if you want to meet with God now, you don't go someplace. Don't need to go to Israel. You go to Christ. He's the new meeting place. And He's at the Father's right hand. If you need forgiveness, you go to Christ. He's the temple. He's, the, he's where you meet up with God now. It's in Jesus Christ. And it's through the glory of this incarnation that God the Son, now dwelling in a human body, that's His temple, now becomes the perfect temple and fulfills everything that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant temple uh, prefigured and pointed forward to. In other words, Christ is our Emmanuel, which means God with us. So again, you want to meet up with God? You want to get to know God? You want a closer relationship with God? You go to Jesus Christ. That's the temple. That's where you got to go to meet with God. As Acts 4.12 says, there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. Because He is now the new covenant temple of the living God. And just to show you how God never goes backwards, never goes back to that old covenant temple, when we finally get to Revelation, is there a temple in heaven? There is no temple in heaven. No building, in other words. In Revelation 21, verse 22, John says, I saw no temple in it. This is the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. I saw no temple building in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Because the temple is where God dwells. When God is in the, on His throne, that is the temple. The very presence of Christ in His human nature, that is the temple. And that will be the temple throughout all eternity because of what the new covenant has done in giving us Christ as our new covenant temple. Our meeting place is in the Lord Jesus. And then quickly, the second point, the corollary. I don't know how much Stephen would have understood this, but Paul and Peter and the rest of the New Testament authors certainly understood it. And I think Stephen may have understood this. That because Jesus Christ is now the living temple, the divine temple of God, because of our spiritual union with Christ, what does that make us? We are now a spiritual temple in Christ. 
Now, I think Stephen could have understood that if he recalled and the Spirit reminded him of what Jesus said when he said, my temple is a body, the temple is my body, but when the Spirit comes, I will be in you and you will be in me. So if we're in Christ and He is God's new covenant temple through the incarnation and we are in Him and He is in us, we're a part of His spiritual body, then we're also a part of a spiritual temple. And this is what has been emphasized oftentimes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Is he talking about a building? No, he's talking about a church. He's talking about us. We are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God indwells us. That makes our physical body a temple. Both individually and corporately, we are a temple of the living God. In 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you're not your own? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, because your body is a temple in which Christ dwells through the Holy Spirit. Be careful about what you bring into the temple. God owns it. God bought it. Belongs to Him. Be careful about what defilements you bring into your mind and your heart because you're a holy temple by the grace of God. And this is just marvelous because we certainly do not deserve this incredible privilege. 2 Corinthians 6, real quickly, Paul again says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever or what agreement has the temple of God with idols for we are the temple of the living God just as God said I will dwell in them so the new covenant temple is not a building it's a body it's Christ's physical body and it's his spiritual body which is the church we are now the temple of the living God. Paul emphasized that again in Ephesians 2, Christ Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. We're a holy temple in the Lord. Christ is a foundation, but He's building up His church, which is the new covenant temple of the living God. Peter also understood it. And coming to Him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, now talking to the church, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, i.e. a temple, for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Not only are we the new covenant spiritual temple, we're the new covenant spiritual priesthood offering up spiritual sacrifices, not for salvation, but in worship and praise to God. That's who the church has now become. That's who we are in Jesus Christ. And I find this to be an amazing thing that I, I think if Stephen didn't understand this, I think he could have if he connected the dots. But certainly the rest of the New Testament gives us the rest of the story of the glory of what God is doing in saving us and making us into His holy temple because we are connected with the true divine temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the point is, I think, that is uh, 
by way of application for us is that we need to glory in Christ. Stephen used a very subtle tact to try to communicate to them that, look, you, you, you're trying to bottle up the omnipresent God into a building, into a box, and you can't do that because God has revealed His glory throughout the, the world at that point in time. That you not only misunderstand God's glory and His nature, but you have this unhealthy, ungodly, idolatrous attachment to your temple building, thinking that God's presence is there so that you're in good standing with God. And he very subtly has reminded them that you cannot make an idol out of that temple. God dwells in heaven. His, his foot's are on the footstool of the earth, that it's sinful to try to confine him inside of a box. And I think that the great truth for us today is as we glory in that truth, that Christ is now the new covenant temple and is at the Father's right hand. And because he is in us and we are in him, that he has made us his spiritual body still on earth, that we are now the temple of God on earth. Not a building, but a spiritual body in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And I think this is a glorious thing because you need to think in terms of who you are in light of this truth. That in spite of all of our struggles with sin, in spite of all of our failures and all of our weaknesses and all the times when we're unfaithful and we don't do what we ought to do and we do what we shouldn't do and all the spiritual, God has called us and has made us to be His holy dwelling place. That God dwells in you. That we are His special, holy, new covenant temple. And do we deserve it? No, but this is what Christ has has blessed us in being through our union with Him that we now become God's temple on earth. We are His dwelling place. You don't have to go anywhere in the world. We are His dwelling place. We are His temple. We are His holy place by virtue of Christ dwelling by His Spirit in our hearts. And you know what that means for you? That He's not confined to a building either. Isn't it a blessing to know that God is not confined to this building? That when you leave this service, God will go with you wherever you go, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. God is with you because He's omnipresent and He dwells in you. You're His temple. You're never outside of His reach. You, you will never lose the blessing of His presence. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Why? Because He dwells in us. We are His temple. He's always with us. And what a great blessing in times when life seems dark and you wonder, where is God? But He's with us and He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. As David wrote in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shale, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, that's east and west, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. And he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain to it. And that's part of the sense that we should have in terms of that God has now made us His dwelling place on earth. 
And He will never leave us. And He goes with us wherever we go. So that whatever trials you are in, and you wonder, God, where are you? He is with you. He's with you in the fiery furnace as He was was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's with you in the lion's den when Daniel was there. He's with you in Psalm 23, and yea, though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, yet I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. God is with you in times of blessings, in times of pain, in times of struggle. God is with us. He's Emmanuel. Why? Because He's made you His holy temple. He has made you His dwelling place. And you have to go nowhere else. He is with you. He has revealed Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. And isn't it a blessing to know who we are now in Christ and the promises that not only is God with us, but He can't be confined to a building. But He is always with us wherever we go. And He'll never leave us, nor will He ever forsake us. These are temple truths that we can cherish and embrace in the new covenant because Jesus Christ, the divine temple, God dwelling in a human nature has come to save us from our sins by dying on the cross that we might come to know Him and have fellowship with Him. Well, may God encourage you with these temple truths that Stephen begins to lay forth and the rest of the New Testament begins to fill in the color uh, as the Spirit directed them. So let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank You, Lord, for this uh, quite phenomenal message that Stephen, in great boldness and risking his own life, was willing to preach to these guilty, idolatrous Jews in the Sanhedrin. And Father, we thank You that Jesus Christ has come to fulfill all that the Old Covenant temple uh, foreshadowed. And now that the reality has come in Jesus Christ, it's time for the shadow to fade away. And we just thank You that Christ now is our new meeting place. And if there is anyone here this morning who does not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and they want to know God because they're convicted of their sin and their life is a mess and they want to come to know the forgiveness that only God can give. Oh Lord, open their eyes to see the offer of Jesus Christ. That He is the temple of the living God. He is where God is. And give them faith and grace that they might turn to Him and receive Him as their Lord and as their Savior. And for your children, for those of us, Lord, that sometimes struggle in seeing your presence with us, oh God, may the Spirit of God open our hearts to see these glorious temple truths of the new covenant. That God is, God's temple and dwelling place is not in a building, it's not in a temple, but it's in our own very hearts. And He's promised that He will never leave us And may that encourage us when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And may we fear no evil, trusting that we are your temple, that you dwell in us, and that you are always and forever and eternally with us. 
And we give you praise for this. In Jesus' name, amen.